It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is Time Enough Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Time Enough Podcast where we plunge into episodes of the Twilight Zone and beyond. This is Matt here. Coming back for a second run is the man with the fantastic Rod Serling impression. It's Ivan Bodley. Hello. Hey man, how's it going? Good to see you. Thanks for jumping back in. And and of course this one, um, I mean, obvious, I, well, I'm assuming you've never been the lead in a Broadway play, but you have been backstage for plenty of Broadway shows. Not I've 1960 worked. or 27, but more recently. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've worked in uh, 13 different Broadway shows um, in the pits and backstage, and I've appeared on stage in, I think, four or five of them as a as a character, usually playing the part the role of a bass player. I get typecast a lot, but, you know, <laughs> that's what I do. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with Broadway. Uh, and I when I saw this episode, I was like, oh, I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts <laughs> about this one for sure. Yeah, and I'll definitely be wanting to hear them because uh, I'm. Yeah, the most backstage I have in my life is um, terrible clubs and orchestra concerts, which are, I mean, maybe the the orchestra concert has a little bit in common, but probably not that much. I, I mean, you know, there's not like the whole show, right? It's just throw an orchestra on stage and play. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, Broadway is definitely its its own scene, and it's a very specific environment. Uh, and a lot of it they got right in the episode too, of course, because they're they're all you know theater people that went on into television, I'm sure, and filmmaking. But there was also a bunch of stuff I was like, no, 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 that's not <laughs> that's not how it goes. Yeah, this will be um, reflected in my trivia, but uh, you know, I'm finding more and more with the Twilight Zone actors that it's 40s they did radio dramas or Broadway, 50s they did right. film, 60s they did TV. <laughs> right, that's right. Now, just the trajectory of the times, which makes you wonder who's doing film in the 60s. But, you know, obviously someone did because we have films to watch. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, and I, I, you know, I'm sure you're going to get into this, too. But uh, this episode features a very young Sidney Pollack who went on to become quite an accomplished movie actor. Exactly. So, you know, uh, well, I, I guess I will get to my trivia straight away, which, uh, you know, of course, brings that up a little bit. But um, yeah, the, uh, did it, we even say the title? Uh, this one is The Trouble with Templeton, which isn't that descriptive a title, which is probably why we haven't said it. It's more like it's the one with Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one about Broadway. So what, what was it? Season two, episode six, I think is what it said in my... I believe my that's correct. Um, right. I'm not sure about the number six, but okay. yeah, sounds... It might be nine. I don't know. doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> early, early second season. Yeah, let's put it that way, for sure. Yes, for sure. The air date was... December 9th, 1960. Um, right. We've got a new name in the writer's seat for this one, which is Ernest Jack Newman. He was primarily a TV writer. The, the job scored him Peabody and Edgar Awards. I, I don't think I know what an Edgar Award is, but... <laughs> <laughs> Gotta <laughs> but, uh, be related somehow. Yeah, yeah. Writing, probably, right? Yeah. This is his only 
contribution to the Twilight Zone, though. So don't oh, okay. don't get used to him. Someone you can get used to is director Buzz uh, Kulik, who the Twilight Zone is basically his claim to fame, and this is one mm -hmm. of uh, several episodes he directed. Right. This episode's namesake is played by Brian Aherney. I don't know if I said that right, but he did start off on Broadway before moving on to film and then to television, as I, as I was just saying, <laughs> that a lot of these guys do. Um, he was Oscar nominated for his role as Emperor Maximilian in Juarez. Juarez. Give that Jay the right pronunciation. <laughs> uh, Pippa Scott played that lost love, Laura. Uh, she had a notable film debut in The Searchers. I think she's the school teacher. Uh, and spent most of the 60s inhabiting various TV roles. And and like you mentioned, Sidney Pollack is, is the big name here. I mean, probably the biggest person that's been in the Twilight Zone so far. Right. Has Shatner come through yet? Maybe he was through last week. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he may play a director of television, but he's also a director who won multiple Oscars for 1985's Out of Africa and got nominations for a... Uh, uh, Tootsie and oh, he got nominated for something else too but uh yeah pretty much everything he's done is something you've at least heard of if not right seen so I guess I'll just list Jeremiah Johnson the way we were three days of the condor as a couple sure. other ones that uh huge huge movies huge yeah 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 I um you know watching it last night as, as I said I had I had I basically passed out my computer and ended up actually watching this at, at three in the morning so I didn't <laughs> right. I was just like my first take on him was just kind of like for a guy that's saying he's young, he doesn't look that young, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's, it's the eye of the beholder is a different episode title in the twilight zone States. <laughs> yeah. He look. doesn't look that young. Cause I mean, he, supposedly he's very young and, and, and Templeton is supposed to be very old and, and PS Templeton looks like he's what 60 maybe yeah like he's not I mean? falling like, apart quite yet so no and you know i'm gonna be 58 tomorrow i'm thinking like i don't you know i'm not sure how he's supposed to be that old and you know and, and pollock is supposed to be that young interestingly enough i mean as famous as Sidney pollock became i did not recognize him at first and i didn't i wasn't paying attention to the to the credits as they went by so um i just you know i didn't know who he was until the end i was like whoa whoa that was Sidney pollock and because I was struck, and I'm glad I didn't know, because I was struck during the episode, like, he's kind of got a southern accent, you know, as the director he, he's playing, but he kind of, he slips in and out of the southern accent. This is my other problem. I grew up in Tennessee, so I know what a southern accent is supposed to sound like. But it's sort of like almost half British, like theatrical British, and then half southern, and he kind of like, he's kind of waffling in between and not doing a great job of it. I'm going like... Man, who's the guy with the lousy accent? And I was like, oh, that's Sidney Pollack, the world famous <laughs> award winning director. director. Direct yeah. Well, he acts too, of course, but uh, this actually is the start of his career. So I, right. I don't think he has an earlier credit than this and, and very quickly switched to doing more directing on TV. But yeah, um, in my notes, I was writing the accent as just being Southern madman. And uh, <laughs> otherwise, we're just, we're drowning in the, uh, what they call the mid Atlantic accent right so yeah but it was weird because he kind of waffled in and out of it like he wasn't really sticking to it either way and i was like all right well good nice try there young actor whatever your name is i'm sorry is it sydney pollock whoops sorry never mind <laughs> yeah you'll be that's, fine that's pretty much yeah exactly but uh just get on the other side of the camera more often <laughs> but i mean i shouldn't i shouldn't take a dump on his head for acting he does make no, some not at all. good appearances later on and and this one's oh, not yeah. bad it's just like you said he hit, can't quite choose a voice right. um 
I know you could choose a voice, so I've thrown the prologue on the, the screen for you. If yes. You give that a read, please. <clears throat> I'd be happy to. Please to present for your consideration Mr. Booth Kempleton, serious and successful star of over 30 Broadway plays, who is not quite all right today. Yesterday and his memories is what he wants, and yesterday is what he'll get. Soon his years and his troubles will descend on him in an avalanche. In order not to be crushed, Mr. Booth Templeton will escape from his theater and his world and will make his debut on another stage in another world that we call the Twilight Zone. All right. Um, I feel like we're kind of getting going to get into a bit of a two pronged conversation here. So I guess let's start with the, the Broadway vibe and then maybe we'll get right. to the existentialism a little later. But uh, yeah, you were saying there were a lot of things right, a lot of things wrong. Where would you like to start? <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah, well, immediately, immediately I'm struck by the fact that he, you know, Booth Templeton, you know, we opened on his his personal estate with his private valet and he's looking out on his uh, to his swimming pool with his philandering wife. And I'm just thinking, like, what Broadway star has an estate and a valet, you know, I understand that Broadway stars were a bigger deal sort of in 1960 than they possibly are in 2022. But, you know, I, I just out of curiosity, I looked up, you know, I did a, a Google search and it's completely unscientific, you know, the Google searches just usually mean crap when you look up like so-and-so's net worth. So I looked up the net worth of the biggest Broadway star currently that I could think of. And they said that uh, her her estates they're, they're estimating her worth to be eight million in today's dollars. And I'm thinking like eight million. I'm not sure if eight million buys you an estate and a pool and a valet and a chauffeur. You know what I mean? It's like the big like Lebowski's was, place, <laughs> right? Like it seemed like really uh, above the station of what a Broadway star is. Certainly today, I don't know if it was quite so in 1960, but even then, it seemed like wow this guy is you know they're making him out to be a giant star because it wasn't movie star money it was not then not now you know um because it's a you're only appearing in one theater on in on 48th street or whatever you know yeah my my first note was um wow that's an amazing like you know like penthouse apartment you know right. like art deco and i was like what is a house huh that doesn't make any sense so you yeah. know even for me i'm like wouldn't he like want to live in the city <laughs> for just well, I, for conven or be in the city for convenience? Right. He's starting no, a play. I know a lot of people that, you know, that that commute in, you know, if, once you've sort of reached a certain status, you know, if you want to buy a house somewhere, you go up to Westchester County, upstate or, you know, to Connecticut, uh, Fairfield, something like that. There's some uh, there's some places that are within commuting distance of the city, especially if you have a driver, which he seems to have a chauffeur, you know, bring him to the theater. And uh, so that's that. I could sort of that seemed plausible to me, just sort of the size of the estate. And again, the swimming pool and the valet and the and the and the chauffeur. I'm like, nah, I don't know, man, on Broadway salary, even a good Broadway salary, <laughs> maybe production wise. I think this is the same setting that they did um, used for a, an episode a few weeks ago, a, a thing about machines, about a. Um, ah, OK. A, a, again weirdly in a mansion because it's like i think he's like a food critic or something i don't remember if it's food but he's like some kind of like newspaper critic and you're like okay even if he's like nationally syndicated i don't right. think he's gonna live in this mansion so season two yeah. twilight zone just must have been like hey we can go film this mansion <laughs> yeah well that's the thing i you know i know the the, the new york city street 
uh, scene, you know, the, the set is just on the back lot there, you know, so I'm sure that anytime they do, uh, they need a, a big house and it's like, all right, well, you go to the mansion set that's down the block there, you know, they were filming what they had, I'm sure. Um, now the thing, I guess on the, the Broadway scene that really stuck in my mind was a, well, a proper director saying the three most important days are the first day of rehearsal, the first day of the show and the last day of the show. And the first day of rehearsal is even more important than the other two. <laughs> is, is that accurate? He said it with such authority. I believed him. <laughs> you know, I, I've never heard that specifically, but I've heard directors make speeches like that. Like they come in and they've got a concept and an idea and they're trying to inspire you and they say stuff like that. Like it's some sort of aphorism. And everyone's like, oh, yeah. So that <laughs> completely rang true. I'm like, yeah, directors say crap like that all the time. Like they're trying to inspire their cast or whatever. So that was no problem there. Uh, for me, a bigger problem was when his chauffeur did deliver into the city, the poster at the front of the theater said uh, the show is opening in eight weeks, right? Which means they've got, you know, eight weeks of rehearsal to do before the show opens. And they're rehearsing in the theater. Uh, these days, that does not happen. Every, all the rehearsals happen off-site in a rehearsal studio that you rent until the last maybe two weeks, 10 days before the show opening because you, you do only, in, when you're in the theater, you only do the tech rehearsals. So you're working on the lighting and the sets and all the things moving in and out you know, that need to happen in addition to whatever dialogue and music you've got to do. So like... The fact that they're rehearsing in the theater for eight weeks, I'm thinking like, uh -uh, no, 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 <laughs> just, you know, because the theater managers, the people who own the theaters, they're only making money while they're selling tickets. So they, you know, especially in this day and age, and again, it could have been a little different in 1960, but I kind of doubt it. Like you, they already know what the next show is going to be in every theater. So like as soon as, you know, such and such a show closes, they're lowered, they have like a week to load out and the next show has a week to load in and they're, they're up. They're like, you know, they're already selling tickets for the next show. So that was like, no, eight weeks in rehearsing in the theater. And the first day of rehearsal, because this, this, this show, this, this scene is set in is like the very first day of rehearsal you just mentioned. I'm like, that definitely would not be on the stage of the theater you're going to be occupying for the next however many months, you know. Was Templeton so rich? He's just footing the bill. <laughs> I, I guess too, and that—that's another big point of issue too, because he immediately encounters the producer of the play, right? The guy whose name he can't remember. He right. Has to be reminded. Or doesn't of his really seem times. to know. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. You know, and and again, in this day and age, there's not one producer for anything. There may be a lead producer, but there's like, you know somewhere between five and 20 people that have actually put up the money for these things that all call themselves producers. And you absolutely know who the lead producer is on your show. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no kind of way that you don't know who's paying your, your paycheck because that's the person who's writing your check. So like the fact that he's not sure who that person is, I'm like, mm, don't think so. And then there's a, uh, well, like when, when we get to the end, I'll tell you that, you know, there's, there's sort of the, the thing that he says to him there. I'll, I'll discuss that when we start talking about the end of it. I'm thinking like, you know, like 50s films, epics, musicals, um, there's film, of course, but I think maybe at that point in time, we had more of like the superstar producer. So on TV, right. it's kind of like, like, here's the producer, whereas, you know, nowadays you, you watch a new Star Trek and, and, and the opening credits are going to list you like 20 different names as a right. producer. Exactly so. right. And Broadway is the same way, especially these days. It's like there's 20 people that have put up money, you know, for this thing. Oh, here's the other thing too. 
you know, uh, Sidney Pollock's character says, when I call a, a, a noon rehearsal, I mean noon sharp. And I'm like thinking, noon rehearsal? Who, do, who does that? Like, no, like rehearsals start at 10 a.m. They always do, they always have, you know, they, they work. Ten, and here's why. Rehearsals go from 10 to 6, and that gives the, the, you know, the actors time to like, you know, then they have an hour if they have to go do their evening performance if they're still on in another Broadway show. So like, you know, people are often rehearsing for a new show while they're still, you know, finishing up their old show and or doing workshops and stuff like that. So like there's there's no noon start times in the theater. It's always 10 a.m., 10 to 6, 10 to 6, you know, so I didn't buy that at all. It's like Sidney Pollack, why don't I call a noon rehearsal? I'm like, noon? <laughs> Maybe nice. it's like the uh, the Beatles get back thing where you have John Lennon sauntering in at noon. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, but he's late. You know what I mean? Like, that's the whole yeah. thing. Like, everybody else has been there for two hours. Yeah, know? good point. And he was, uh, that was still early for a Beatles uh, recording session anyway. So, right. <laughs> and there was also the, 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 the minor point that he was also, uh, I think that was right into his, his heroin days at that point, too. So, yeah, he was having a few other issues at that yeah. moment in time. So noon, so, uh, noon for a heroin addict in the studio. That's, that's, you know, that's prompt. That's good, man. Okay. Well, give him. A, well, yeah, he had handlers, so I push true. him in the right direction. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I guess you had another Broadway point before we take our trip into the past, or or um, is that what you meant by waiting for the end? <laughs> yeah. No, I'll, I'll I'll tell you that about the end. There, the, there's 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 a point of order at the at the very last scene that is very anti what I know about current Broadway, but we'll cover that when we get to it. You want to do end end. Okay. So let's, let's take the existentialist route for a few minutes then. Mm -hmm. And, um, this is, uh, there's a, a season one episode walking distance where, where, uh, Marty, Marty walks back in time to his childhood okay. and, right. uh, starts to make like every possible like time travel mistake. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Sure. Uh, to the point of like slightly crippling himself, uh, in the present, mm -hmm. but <laughs> right. Right. This one's a little more even keeled. Like I kind of feel like Templeton, while he's you know, depressed or whatever, um, he, you know, kind of like takes the situation a little more in stride. And maybe that's because we're a season and a half in a twilight zone. So maybe, you know, people's sensibilities are a little more key to the show by this point. <laughs> so Right. Yeah. He's not completely undone by the fact that he's traveled back in time 33 years. Like he just, he, he's, he kind of goes, wow, that's over 30 years. And then he's kind of like, okay, cool, <laughs> fine. But I was thinking if I, if I were to, um, well, I'm, I'm 43 now. So, um, you know, obviously the 30 year jump would put me in junior high and that would just be weird. So I'll, I'll take a 20 year jump. And I was like, oh, I'll end up in a speakeasy, you know, Athens, Georgia right. had the restaurant, the speakeasy, which was our regular place then. So I just had that little, yeah, yeah, I can see going in there. My friends are in there and, uh, right. And I wouldn't currently be able to probably associate with them properly. <laughs> right, right. Well, that was the other thing, too. Like, again, like he's supposed to be this very aged character. And I think he's like, again, like they never say exactly what age he is, but he can't be much more than 60 tops, you know. So like this 33 year jump takes him back to what, 29 kind of thing? But 27, you know? I think they have on the, on the poster. Yeah. Well, 1927, that's the, that's the year, but I'm saying like, how old does that make the character in both of those? Oh, instances? right. Okay. Let's see his wife around 25, who would have been born around 1902 if he's the same age as his wife. Well, we'll even right. give him a few years. He's still in his early 60s. So yeah. Tops, right? 
which is, you know, they portray him as this decrepit over the hill sort of guy. And again, like from my current vantage point, you know, turning 58 tomorrow, I'm like, I don't think, you know, that doesn't seem that old and decrepit. But again, these are 1960 years versus, you know, where we are now. Oh, wow. I hit the nail on the head. The uh, actor actually was born in 1902. So he would have been uh, 58 oh, making this episode. <laughs> so in other words, yeah. he and I are exactly the same age. Yeah, people look older in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> like sometimes so, uh, you're like, this guy's 50. And we're like, no, nah, that guy's 70. Right. <laughs> you know, it's so all I'm, over the place. I'm decrepit and over the hill now. All right. I got to, you know, relax into my new my new social status then. No problem. Happy birthday. Actually, it yeah, is your yeah. birthday in Japan. It's seventh. It's seventh. Yeah. Oh, cheers. Appreciate it. Yeah, right on. Got, right got, on, yeah. got my, um, one of my other podcasts has birthdays coming up with the, the auspicious date of September 11th. Yeah, that's a tough <laughs> birthday. I have some friends with that one too. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, he's like, I, I'm, uh, he's, he's younger than me. So he's like, yeah, on my 10th or 11th birthday, I just, I just want everyone to see the new Pokemon game that I got for my birthday, oh, but nobody was man. interested. <laughs> yeah that made that birthday a very unfun one to have that's too bad. right right but um yeah back here yeah running into your old friends it is like i assume most of us would now he doesn't encounter himself of course he encounters people he knows but right i you know i i almost wonder if like he'd get along even worse with himself <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to know. I thought it was also weird too that they were they they did make one allusion to the fact like, you know, you should take off your makeup before you come from the theater because they've assumed that he's got this old 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 man makeup on which makes him making him look 58 years old when he's really only 27 or something. I'm like, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I get it. Just odd. It was an odd sort of aside. Now the thing that really does kind of nail this episode down i was wondering if it really was the right choice like it's it's a little less i mean it's still very vague it is it's clearly in the twilight zone but um right you could almost be like he did actually encounter specters of his of his proper past or whatever but when he leaves everyone stops and the lights go down and the script comes out right so right even well, what he said was scripted so that that's really interesting right and he and he somehow managed to to leave with the script in his hand you know he like he had the he had the evidence so he knew oh that's right they were all acting they were all acting i was a little unsure about the speakeasy scene uh and the, and the concern looked up all the actors like when after he exited the premises like all the actors kind of looking concerned and the, the lights are coming down i'm like huh that's very interesting take not much like they they've it's basically the twilight zones version of dickinson's a christmas carol like, you know, these, these specters from the past are warning him, you know, to, to go back to his regular life and appreciate it for what it is mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. thing. but it, it was odd the way that the way that scene ended, you know, with the actors just kind of staring at the door. Yeah. Cause it's, it's made clear that, um, his director friend had also, it was also dead by this point. So I'm like, are these the ghosts of the actual people like in the twilight zone trying to keep him out of it? What's, what's, what's up here? <laughs> Right. I, I don't know that that was necessarily made clear, but it seemed to me to be m more time travel, like he'd gone back in time, you know, and they just happened to see them as they were. They they were because they were still young as the way that they were, even though we find out, you know, in another scene that they're actually in on the they're in on the joke and they're acting to try and warn him away from that, from wanting to remain in the past, you know. 
Yeah, uh, just to go for that second Star Trek reference, it was it was almost like a metaphysical hollow deck, you know, like there's right. a story that you're participating, but it's supposed to go this certain way, you know, that sort of thing. Like, right, and it was pre predestined, you know, like you said, you had this, they had this script that was telling them that they had to say these lines to make him want to flee the scene and and go back to his former life with his newfound appreciation and newfound confidence too, because you know when he when he first shows up at the Broadway theater for his first rehearsal, you know, he kind of runs away. He's kind of, he's, he's afraid of what's going to happen. And then when he returns and after he realizes what's happened, suddenly he's filled with his, you know, his previous vim and vigor and confidence and, and commanding the respect of the Sidney Polly character, you know, that kind of thing. I, I do find it interesting though. Again, that's where this whole, like it's scripted part is like, well, it's, it's hard. To, and the look of concern is weird, but at first you're just like, right. well, he can't, it's his lost love, but he's actually trying, you know, he's an older, a, a middle-aged dude trying to, you know, like associate with like a 25 year old girl. Right. Which is right. not, I mean, you know, obviously he's got his personal history, but that, that may not be enough because just to associate with someone in the room. Right. Right. It, it was uh, it was a little ambiguous uh, about the actual, you know, timeline versus, you know, what was Twilight Zone? What was the, the reality? You know, but again, this is Serling stock and trade. You know, it's like a little ambiguous. Yeah. You, you know, we're not going to tell you, you know, anything nearly what you might need to know to have just sort of a nice bow put on everything and sort of understand everything that's gone on. Uh, but again, you know, it was, to me, it was just basically the twilight zone version of a Christmas Carol, like, you know, where he's visited by these specters from the past Scrooges and, you know, he's, he's scared by them. So, you know, scared into appreciating his reality and, you know, comes back to the Broadway theater, basically going, God bless us, everyone, you know, is, <laughs> is he quite doing that, though? He's he seems a little bit confrontational, like I have my vim and vigor back and I'm going to use it to, um, act, you know, do the stuff Scrooge would do to people. <laughs> right. Right. I think we're in that in his case, you know, what he's what he's lost is his mojo. He's lost his vitality. He's lost, you know, or he feels that he has. And once he realizes that, you know, living in the past is not going to bring any of that back, then he's going to have to, you know, to command the respect that that is due him as a veteran of 30 Broadway shows or whatever it said in, in, in the opening there, you know. I'm, I'm so just he, wondering if his transition is from sad sack, not to, you know, like renewed room and vigor, but, you know, sad sack to aged prick. <laughs> right. Well, you know. It's a fine line, isn't it? You know, I, I think that there, I think the intention to me looked like, you know, they were trying to say like, he's, he's basically, like I said, got his mojo back because he, he's going to go in into Sidney Pollock's character and say, you know, you must call me Mr. So that's, you know, he, he's, he's demanding the respect that he's, he should be due with someone of his, uh, esteemed track record you know being a star for that many years on broadway yeah i'm just like give him a week or two and these guys might be in a shouting match over creative differences still oh, you know yeah. it's not yeah, like yeah, you yeah. learn to be awesome in that sort of a way <laughs> right right and and to this point now this is where i'll bring up the thing where he now then he when he re-encounters the producer he remembers the producer's name and he kicks him out of the rehearsal and he says that no one not directly associated with the play may be present for my rehearsals right I'm like, he's, dude, he's directly 
the guy that you kicked out is the guy that's paying you. He's directly. It, that was, a, you know, a, a plot point. I was like, no, no, no. That's not how this would ever, ever work. You don't ever kick the producer out of rehearsals. They're always in rehearsals. And like I said, they're paying for it. So, yeah. Actually, it's a, you know, for film, we typically, and it's changing with streaming and all that, but typically film has been kind of like, oh, that's the director's thing. We have the auteur like the idea or not. Uh, television has been more about the producer or the, the showrunner. Um, right. I guess for Broadway, it would be the producer. I mean, we got a, we got the producers as a Broadway musical. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I mean, that's that's one aspect of it. And also the director, too, is sort of like, you know, they're, they're, they're different uh, parts of the same mechanism. I'm just, but I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if like like a TV, you know, sh uh, TV show, you can switch out the directors, but you keep the producers for longer periods of time. Uh, how much director switching can you do on Broadway? Uh, you don't. I mean, you, you know, when you're putting the play together, it's directed by so and so. So you go through this rehearsal process, and uh, it's typically, you know, six to 10 weeks, depending on the show, depending on how technical it is, you know, and then once the show is what they call frozen, once we've got it, it's gone through the preview period, audience has been seeing it already for four weeks, and it has opening night. So once it has opening night, the show is frozen and it stays there, which means the director doesn't need to keep coming to the theater every night, but they, they appoint somebody who's either like a resident director or the stage manager, these people to maintain the show. So even though, you know, so you look like a show like, uh, you know, I don't know, Lion King that's been running for 20 something years, whatever it is, like, you know, uh, the director is still getting the royalties from that show, uh, even though, you know, she hasn't been there in, in 15, 20 years and doesn't need to. Like, so once the director is set and the show is frozen, that's just what it is. Um, you know, and the producer, if they, you know, anything else will be another production, another show. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't change and bring in a different production, a different director. You know, even if the show then goes out on tour or then has another company in London or another company that's, you know, in Las Vegas or whatever, like it's still the same directed by whoever his name is on, on the credit from the beginning so the director for the show is the director okay so so the person who's doing it after that um and and, and this is the first thing that popped into my mind was kermit the frog in the muppet show where he's sure. not directing he's just trying to hold it together <laughs> yeah yeah he's just kind of hurting the hurting cats basically at that point yeah i mean that's part of it i, I also I like to assume the backstage of a broadway shows like the muppet show i don't know if i'm right or wrong on that but <laughs> It, it's not dissimilar sometimes it just sort of depends what's going on because as you know everybody's walking in and out and they're holding wearing funny costumes and holding funny props and maybe with with or without animals you know depending on <laughs> what the show is involved there was a i did this show called once on this island there was a goat and there were chickens so they were there and there were there were two goats because uh um, spark plug and peapod were the name of the goats i, I think uh Sparkplug was the main actor in the show. Uh, but if Sparkplug like wasn't feeling it, it was kind of acting up, kind of being, you know, feisty, whatever, Peapod would go on in, in, in his place kind of thing. So like there's all, and that, there's shows that have dogs in them, you know, have multiple animal handlers and stuff. So yeah, it, it can feel very Muppet showy backstage <laughs> sometimes for sure. Yeah, I'm wondering how that show smelled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. want the front do you want front row seats for that one? <laughs> you know. It was a, a 360 experience, as they say. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was only only one show that was there that I know of where a director was fired, and this is quite famously so. It was the, the, the debacle that became Spider Man. 
it was Spider-Man 1.0 and Spider-Man 2.0. They, they fired the director sort of uh, 10 months into the previous um, process, which a pre preview process never goes more than a month. And this was 10 months into the preview process. They said, like, we got we to gotta <laughs> change something. Something's not working. But that became like, you know, front page news and New York Times stories and all this kind of stuff. So it's very, very unusual for them to fire a director. Yeah, I, I actually had forgotten about that, but I was going to bring up um, that a few minutes ago. I, did, yeah. I didn't want to take a dump on it because I've never seen it, though. Who knows? Maybe I'd love that. I like Spider-Man, but it sounds like I wouldn't. <laughs> it, it was great. I mean, I played that show. I played in the pit maybe 47, 42 times, whatever it was, in the, less, just less than 50 times I did the show. And I saw it from the front of house once. Because when you're down in the in the, uh, in the pit, we weren't actually in the orchestra pit because the pit was full of props and things that flew and stuff. So <laughs> we were kind of down the down in the basement, down the hall in this room with the fluorescent lights and a drop ceiling that looked like any office. And that was half the band was there, and the other half of the band was down the hall in another office-looking building. And we were all tied together through video link, and there was a video monitor on the front of the balcony so the actors could see the conductor, and there was a video monitor for the conductor was watching the stage so she could see the actors, you know, and it was all very, very high tech. Um, but I did see it from the house one time. And, you know, as a as a technological spectacle, it was amazing, like seeing these acrobats flying through the air in the theater in a live theater was really, you know, it was like it was like, you know, being at a Broadway show that was also literally a circus with a high wire act, you know. Well, part of that was production um, cost, right? Just through the roof. Uh, I think it was the large, the most expensive show in Broadway history at about seventy-five million was the last figure that I heard. So yeah, it was uh, outrageously expensive, and of course never recouped. It ran for, I forget, if it was three years total, top to bottom, something like that. And they were made, they were making money like sort of during the high tourist seasons. Um, I forget what the show cost a week to run a couple million dollars just in paychecks to, just to run it. So, uh, they, yeah, they never really recouped. <laughs> it was so expensive, that show. And I think what they ended up with, you know, Spider-Man 2.0, like from the, a, a, a storyline uh, standpoint was, was such a compromise. I think that's maybe what people were thinking like that's that wasn't very good what they had actually ended up with mm -hmm. but just technically it was spectacular like to look at it was like wow it was amazing yeah yeah that's I, that's the sort of thing though you know it's a it's a dead show and i'm like well i guess i could probably find a video of it or something but eh, it seems wrong to do it that way so <laughs> yeah it, w it wouldn't have the impact you know like you know up at the at the second balcony which is the dress circle like the nosebleed seats there was a little platform up there and, and they, instead of calling it the the dress circle or whatever they called it the flight circle because on that platform there were several times where the lead flyer would would fly from the stage and land physically like you know right in front of your seat you know way up in the cheap seat so you're going to get like you know you know spider-man right here in your face and it's kind of <laughs> like hey hey nice to see you <laughs> Oh, what do you do? I'm a lead flyer. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. also you got to, you know, that's a great time for Spider-Man to keep his mask on, you know, because notoriously the superhero movies now they're unmasked most of the time because you're paying that actor and you want their face on the screen. <laughs> yeah, there were there were nine actors playing Spider-Man during each performance. Wow. So there was one there was one person who was, you know, play, also played Peter Parker, who you saw, you know, unmasked, but the rest of them were other actors and acrobats, really, you know, flying this way and that way so yeah 
nine per show. Wow. Yeah. I want to get into my, my normal questions. So the first one for this one, maybe it's an easy for the one for this one, but uh, who exactly went into the twilight zone? Right. I, I remember you talking about this question before from previous episode we, we talked about. Clearly, the actor went into the Twilight Zone because he, he went back into time, you know, and the Twilight Zone was very clearly delineated because it was this speakeasy scene and there were all these actors in the scene, you know, you know, actively pushing him a away from it. So he was there, you know, and he got a good, good eyeful of it, but then uh, they propelled him out of the Twilight Zone very deliberately and very forcefully. So I guess, so definitely, Kim, I mean, it's the title of yeah. the episode, right? right, um, right. A couple other people, just to consider briefly, would be, um, like, like I was saying, who exactly was he interacting with? Like, was he interacting True. with the, his actual, you know, deceased loved ones or just the Twilight Zone reconstruction? If it's actually his deceased loved ones, well, they're living in the Twilight Zone, so. <laughs> Correct, yeah. They, they, all the actors in the speakeasy scene seem to be stuck in the Twilight Zone and having to play this role. And hence the look on their faces, they all kind of look really morose and concerned when, when the scene was over, they were kind of, <laughs> they were all kind of look quite bothered about it. So yeah, maybe they were stuck in the zone for yeah, as far as we the know. The speakeasy is fun for a few years and then it gets boring. Right. <laughs> Even it also makes me wonder if they had, you know, they'd rehearsed that scene that they had to play with him. If, if that was, you know, we just happened to be seeing the only one time that scene happened, or if that was the kind of thing that they had to do over and over and over again, like the Broadway show. Mm. My my answer is probably not, but uh, how about the uh, our our director? I mean, he's dealing with an actor who has a sudden sea change in um, <laughs> demeanor. Right, but he kind of took it in stride. Like, no, I think he was still a, he he stayed in present day nineteen sixty. I don't think anything happened to him. Oh yeah, I don't th I don't think he moved in time. I'm just wondering if the influence on his life counts. But uh, right. uh, like I said, my answer is probably no. But I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, yeah, which... I think probably no, too, because, again, actors are notoriously flighty and temperamental. So, like, you know, he may come and ha having somebody come in the door kind of sheepish and then suddenly like, like, no, I'm an actor. You must respect me. Like, that's not out of character at all. Like, you know, people <laughs> people do that kind of stuff all the time. So uh, with the second question, we will focus this one on Templeton himself being. Um, right. Does he deserve his trip through the Twilight Zone? Mm, does he deserve it? Does he deserve it? I don't know, like, because he seems to benefit from it, uh, right? Again, in in the in the Christmas Carol sort of way, like you know, he's shown the error of his ways. He's shown that you know he shouldn't be longing for the past, that he needs to be living in his current present, and he needs to also have the full uh, confidence in his abilities and what he's doing, and com and demand that respect, you know, which he which is a lesson he learns in I don't know, twenty two minutes that he's. <laughs> In the Twilight Zone, like he picks up the lesson really fast. You know, it's a sea change to his character, which is like instantaneous. Well, I was uh, thinking he might pick up on it so fast because he didn't really need the Twilight Zone to uh, mm. pick up a bit of confidence. You know, something else could have done the trick too. Oh, oh, right. here's, here's one. Just is he popping Viagra at the beginning of the episode or what? Uh, <laughs> he's like no, he's like it's been an hour here's some more i'm like oh, yeah his wife's out with the the jiggler right but <laughs> right right 
No, because they didn't have Viagra in those days. So what the, what he was popping was supposedly like heart pills, like, like oh yeah, yeah, nitroglycerin, like, nitroglycerin medication or something. You know, like, okay. that 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 was just my three a.m. thought, I guess. Was yeah, like yeah, popping yeah. Viagra, <laughs> which yeah, he's I know it old, didn't exist at the time, but an uh, old old man of fifty seven years old that okay. needs to pop it every hour, right? Right, right. <laughs> okay, right. I was just having fun thoughts last night, right. I guess. Right. <laughs> so yeah, for me, it's like. Maybe he's getting more than he deserves because he should be able to work yeah. out his life on his own. <laughs> right, because he, he really, you know, the whole the whole point of the thing was you really have no problems. You know, you're a successful actor. You've had a great life. You know, you need to live in the present and be who you are. So, yeah, I don't know if he deserves because he didn't seem, he seemed pretty miserable at the beginning. Like suddenly, like now he's he's going to have a happy remainder of his life. All mm -hmm. right. Good well, he's for still you, got his, you know? He's still got his wife. His young wife running around with younger dudes. Again, very Lebowski situation. Right. right. Exactly. Right. Right. The one um, he says he doesn't love, he never loved. I'm like, okay, well, it's your problem. So I guess he doesn't care. Yeah. Right. Right. So, no problems. Okay. So that's not one of his problems. That's why. So that shouldn't affect his confidence too much. But right. I don't know. I right. feel like it would. <laughs> Possibly if he feels cuckolded in that way. But who mm. knows? Who knows? Let's put this one on the tripometer. Zero being not trippy at all. Five being extremely trippy. Where do you want to? Where do you want to throw this one? It was pretty low on the trip factor. Uh, I'm saying in terms of Serling world, you know, Serling can get really way out there sometimes. You know, people with pig noses and all that kind of stuff. Um, the only so I would give it about a two and a quarter, maybe. Um, the only, the trippiest part for me was again, after he exits the speakeasy and all the actors in the speakeasy, they all just sort of like turn and face the door and they all look concerned as the lights are fading. That was the, the, the kind of spooky part that he didn't even really fully explain what or how or why, you know, like that to me, that was the weird moment, you know, not anything that happened to Templeton really. Yeah, I was going in two and a half, and most of that score is based on that shot because that is the one where, like, what exactly is happening? I mean, the What's effect on going on. Yeah, the effect on Templeton is, uh, you know, uh, um, Christmas Carol simple, but you know the mechanics of it, like right. Christmas Carol, the mechanics are also pretty bizarre. But here it's even more bizarre because okay, <laughs> temporal ghosts, eh, it can at least follow that. But I don't know what these things or or people are they could be people they could be things they could be right. you know, npcs they could be actual actors it's it's kind of hard to tell which that's trippy so yeah i, I oh yeah i'd say two of my two and a half is probably just from that <laughs> I, absolutely and that's it was that's like a what a five second scene or something you're like whoa that was it went way out there for just one second because even like you say the christmas carol ghosts you know they come in they make their visits and they do their haunting and then they're gone we don't have any additional backstory on what they're doing and we don't see them, you know, off camera after the scene, like reading their script or looking at, you know, lights coming down. Like they're just, they're gone. They've, they've served their function and gone. And in this scene, they all stayed and like, what are we doing here? <laughs> that was the weird moment. It was great. It was, we've it was served our purpose. Weird. What do we do now? Yeah. 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 yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, what I do like about that as, as well is that kind of is the, I mean, it's not really even an effect, but that kind of is the effects shot of this episode. Right. 
they right. just turn the lights down and stop moving is basically all that happens but uh yeah but it works it's effective so yeah you're right about this 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 particular episode had almost zero sort of visual effects in it uh and he's always usually got like one or two kind of really interesting kind of trick photography something going on something within this one really didn't have that except for this one scene where there's like there's a lighting change like a staged lighting change and the speakeasy toward the end you're like ah. <laughs> I, I guess since this episode is generally somewhat on the positive side you just gotta get get that little bit of existential dread like firmly right. <laughs> grounded right. into the thing um do you have any final thoughts on this particular one uh final thoughts i enjoyed it i think it's uh uh another great one in the in the series you know it definitely does not disappoint all of my nitpicky bones about it were just like things like nah that's not how broadway works you know which is stupid you know it has no that should have no bearing on anybody you know who's a civilian watching this thing and even people who are you know familiar with the theater and people you can you know it's so it's such a minor thing to be able to just suspend disbelief just long enough to sort of go with the story, uh, which I thought was a fine, fine story. I liked it. I, I guess my final thought is just um, when he starts talking to his his wife from in 1927, I'm kind of like, she seems like a bit of a flapper. And then at the end of the scene just goes full <laughs> flapper with like the stereotypical dance and all that. I'm like, oh, all right. right. <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah, that was yeah. kind of just because we don't get to use that term much, do we? That should come back. We should have flappers again. It's the 20s, right? <laughs> he was in exactly a flapper. That's exactly what they are. And you can see why the dance moves like she's just flapping around. That's what she's doing. <laughs> um, so, Ivan, what, what, what's up in your world? Uh, I know you got your book. Anything else? And maybe some shows to play. <laughs> got, got my book. Uh, Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rockstar. I'm quite busy at the moment. Like the live music business has come back full force so i've been doing a lot of weddings funerals and bar mitzvahs staying busy paying the rent uh next friday i'm doing a multi-act uh, classic rock and roll bill with uh the tokens the drifters and uh the first time i'll be playing with frankie avalon which i'm looking forward to you know he's he's going to be 82 this month so it's going to be really interesting to play with him and uh yeah man just continuing on waiting for the next thing you know staying busy and enjoying it mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was just reading a book. Um, what was it called? Twilight of the Gods, just talking about the the you know the aging concept of rock and just how like different it is now, just in the past ten years, how much it's changed. Because now it's like it's it's uh, like you know acts like like sort of legacy acts. That's kind of like becoming the main event now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's you know, who else can tour that has a fan base? You had to have sort of existed in a record business that doesn't exist anymore. You know, a Twilight Zone, if you will, like, uh, <laughs> something before now. So yeah, the the big uh, legacy touring acts or the big stadium acts are people that had records out and CDs out, and you know, before everything was streaming and and YouTube and downloaded and that kind of stuff. So like when you have access to everything it's hard to focus on anything right <laughs> in indeed but again that was that whole sort of marketing machine around selling the physical asset selling the record or selling the cd or even selling the download you know was that was the thing was sort of like you know saying you too you have to you have to know this band you too you must know this band you too so you kept getting it you know over and over again uh, and that's why, you know, the top grossing acts of the uh, last couple of years are, are acts from 30, 40, 50 years ago. They're just basically still doing the same thing that they've been doing. But yeah, it's got to be fun to just, uh, yeah, jump in and, and 
play play along so <laughs> sure sure especially when you know what you're doing <laughs> hopefully <laughs> as for this uh it is time enough podcast for time enough pod on twitter and facebook uh you can support this and other podcasts we do on patreon at podcastio podcastius where we also talk about science fiction films and matt and luke's sci-fi sanctuary and you can hear some video game stuff if you're into the gamers luke loves pokemon for the pokemon uh monster monster mash for the monster hunter fan and a game game show which is a bunch of british people screaming insults e each other about trivial game knowledge <laughs> <laughs> perfect uh i'm having a pleasure as always uh when when's your next rehearsal <laughs> it's it it never ends my friend i've got uh i got three gigs already already lined up for the weekend various venues <laughs> weddings funerals and bar mitzvahs like i said so yeah it, it it never ends it's all good all right happy birthday then <laughs> yeah man thank you brother i appreciate you having me on again i really enjoyed it